Okay, what I'd like to do today is continue on in our study uh, in the Gospel of Mark. So if you turn in your Bibles there to Mark chapter 9, we're going to look at the first 13 verses of this ninth chapter. Now at this point in Mark's Gospel, uh, Mark is turning uh, to a new theme. The book is turning on its hinge. Up to now, the big question of the Gospel of Mark has been, who is Jesus. Now, as we've read through the Gospel of Mark, and as, of course, as Christians 2,000 years later, we know the answer to this question. We know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And even as readers of Mark's Gospel, that's what he said in the very first verse of chapter 1. Uh, but through the book, the characters, whether it's the religious leaders or the crowds or the disciples, they do not know who Jesus is until the disciples begin to confess, namely through Peter in Caesarea Philippi, that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Savior, the descendant of David who would sit on God's throne forever. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They'd come to that realization. But once they realized this about Jesus, he began telling them about his future death and also his resurrection, but they didn't seem to catch that part. His death was mysterious to Jesus' disciples. It blew away all their preconceived notions about the Christ Messiah. And so it would take a little time for them to adjust to this new reality because it was hard news for them to receive. Like I said last week, these disciples anticipated things like thrones and influence and power when the Messiah or the Christ came. They didn't expect things like death and persecution. So what would Jesus do next? How would Jesus prepare his men for the future that he had, but also that they had? And make no mistake, the cross would also be difficult for Jesus. As the cross loomed over his future, what would Jesus do next to prepare himself for the season that was to come? The answer, at least in part, is found in our passage today. Mark chapter 9, verse 1 through 13. And I want to read the entire story or movement to you before we begin. Let's look at it in verse 1. It says, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took, Peter, took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes, verse 3, became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud, verse 7, overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, verse 9, he charged them to tell no one 
what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, verse 11, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Okay, and to, to sort of recap this scene, what, what we see here is that in response to the disciples' confession that Jesus is the Christ, and his new teaching to them about his death and resurrection, Jesus took three of his disciples up to the mountaintop for an epic meeting. We don't know the exact location of this event, but it seems likely that it's one of the peaks of Mount Hermon, perhaps around 9,000 feet in elevation. The other Gospels tell us that when Jesus went there, he went to pray. And as was the custom of these three disciples in particular, they fell asleep while Jesus prayed. And when they awoke, they saw Jesus transfigured and glorious. And then they also saw Elijah and Moses speaking with Jesus. After Peter's blunderous suggestion to build tents for each one of them, the Father showed up in the cloud of glory, enveloped them in his cloud, and said, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Then the cloud of God's glory dissipated, and only Jesus remained. Then they came down from the mountain, and Jesus told them that they had to keep this event to themselves until after he had risen from the dead. And this statement, the resurrection from the dead, raised all kinds of questions in their minds. And one of their questions had to do with the Old Testament prophecies that they had read and heard and been taught about the coming of Elijah before the coming of the Christ. And in answering their questions, Jesus reaffirmed his need to suffer first before he came in glory. And they came down the mountain with a little glimpse of his glory, but the promise of his suffering as well. So what are we to do with such a beautiful and awe-inspiring episode? What did it mean for these disciples? What did it mean for Jesus? And what can it mean for us today? Here's the first thing I want you to see. This moment on the mountaintop was, number one, an encouraging preview, an encouraging preview. It was a preview, so to speak, of the things to come. I want you to notice the way our passage begins. Jesus said, verse one, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now the question that is raised about that statement is who are the some standing there in Jesus's presence who will see his kingdom come with power? And secondly, what would the power of the kingdom of God look like? Now people have attempted all kinds of answers to that question and 
all of them have some kind of problem or difficulty attached to them. But the answer that satisfies me is the one that points to the transfiguration itself as the fulfillment of Jesus's promise. Mark even connects Jesus's saying in verse one with the mountaintop transfiguration in verse two and following by saying in verse two, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Luke, when he records this story, he does the same thing. He says, now about eight days after these sayings, he was counting days in a different kind of way, counting the day of and the day that they had the event itself. Mark was counting the middle days, the six days in between. But when both of them wrote that way, that was not the normal way for Mark or Luke or people at that time to write. They were not tied to chronology like we are in our literature. But the chronology was important to them for this episode because it fulfilled what Jesus had just said in verse 1. This is certainly how Peter, at least, remembered this whole scene many years later. Remember, Jesus told Peter and James and John not to say anything about the transfiguration until after the resurrection. And when Peter wrote his second letter to the church, 2 Peter, he said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to 18, read this on the screen with me. He said, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves, he said, heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. That is Peter's description of what happened to him that day. What did Peter think that he saw on that Mount of Transfiguration? Well, he says it there. I saw Jesus's majesty. I saw him with honor and glory from the Father. The power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is what I saw. That's right. The word power. That's what Jesus had promised some of them standing there would see. The power of the kingdom. That's what Jesus had said. And right there on the holy mountain, these three disciples were witnesses of the majesty and honor and glory and power of Jesus. Now, I submit to you today that seeing Jesus this way, transfigured in power, in glory, was the great need of these disciples. They were about to enter into years and decades of tumultuous and tireless work for Jesus. James, because of King Herod's bloodthirst, would be the first of the apostles to die for the faith. His brother, John, who was also there on the mount, would be the last of the apostles to die. But his long life was not an easy life. He would suffer Rome's persecution and in his elderly state, he would be banished to the island of Patmos, where he'd received the vision that we call the book of Revelation. And Peter, of course, would suffer imprisonments, pressures from all sides, religious persecution, and eventually he would die a torturous 
death, according to Jesus' words in John 21. And this event right here, the transfiguration, this glimpse into Jesus' power and glory and majesty would have been a great aid to all of these men as they went through the difficulties of their lives. I mean, can't you see it? This vision of Christ's glory and beauty would have fueled these men for years to come. When times were hard, when chaos enveloped them, when catastrophe threatened them, they could have drawn upon this memory of Jesus as an encouragement to press on. You see, what they witnessed was a weapon. This revelation was for their motivation. Jesus' power and their vision of it propelled them for years to come. You see, what they were seeing was a glimpse of Jesus' future glory. They saw something so beautiful, so transcendent, that it would motivate them through the monotony and the pain of life. And I think we have a similar need today. When we are bombarded with life's tragedies, when we're tired and worn down by its incessant pressures, and when we feel overwhelmed at the prospects of the future, it's a vision of Jesus' glory and his power that can help move us along. You know, Jesus came once and suffered, but these disciples needed a little glimpse of a more glorious coming, one where the kingdom is present in power. And they got their glimpse up there on that mountain. And you too should know as you read the pages of scripture that King Jesus will come in glory. This is one of the reasons that the book of Revelation is actually so helpful to modern believers. It includes in its introduction, Revelation chapter 1 verse 3, a promise for everyone who reads the book, hears the book, and obeys the book, that they will be uniquely blessed for so doing. Perhaps even with an imperfect understanding of the book of Revelation, you need to read its contents. Maybe you need to catch a little preview of Christ's kingdom and power and glory in the pages of that book as we go through our own times of chaos here on earth. By the way, this glimpse of Jesus, which so encouraged these disciples, what was it? It was worship. They saw something so glorious and so beautiful in Jesus that it motivated them, it drove them to worship. And worship fueled them for their mission. You know, the same thing could be said for us. When we worship personally or collectively, in song or in silence, with music or just from the heart as we go through our days, we're fueled for our work as well. So that's the first thing. This meeting on the mountaintop was an encouraging preview. Okay, but it was also an important conference, number two. An important conference, number two. Jesus met there on the mountaintop. He conferred with Moses and Elijah. Now, it had been centuries since both of these men had walked the earth. But, so this was a supernatural thing as they met with Jesus up there on the mountaintop. Now, Mark only tells us that they were talking with Jesus in verse 4. But Luke actually expands on this a little bit in his account 
when he says in Luke 9, verse 31, that they appeared in glory and spoke of Jesus's exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Jesus's exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, Moses, of course, led the exodus from Egypt, and he died a mysterious death. Uh, well, Elijah, he exited the earth in dramatic fashion, a whirlwind of fire. But Jesus, he would, after his own unique death and resurrection, exit the earth by ascending back to the Father. And his departure, preceded by his death, would enable the greatest exodus ever. Our exodus from sin into life, from death into life. So they talked to Jesus about his exodus, his departure. And this was done as a way to encourage Jesus. Remember, Jesus became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. You take one look at the Garden of Gethsemane and you understand that Jesus felt great pressure mounting upon him because of the implications of the coming cross. So on that mountain, Moses and Elijah, they talked with Jesus about the coming events in Jerusalem. I won't call it a pep talk, but a reinforcement of the determined direction of Jesus's heart. And their words bolstered Jesus, and he was strengthened for his journey. But it wasn't only Jesus's heart that was reinforced that day. His identity was reinforced, and so was his mission. First, his identity was reinforced when God responded to Peter's proposal. And after seeing the transfigured Jesus walking with Moses and Elijah, and Peter somehow I'm sure you noticed this, recognized Moses and Elijah. It's not like they were photos floating around in Jerusalem at the time. But after seeing them, Peter suggested that he and the other disciples could build three tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. In other words, they could stay there on the mountain. Jesus was great. Moses was great. Elijah was great. Moses represented the law, Elijah, the prophets, and now Jesus is on their team, Peter thought. Wouldn't it be great to isolate, to hunker down on that mountain, to build structures that enabled people to come and visit each one of these glorious figures? Now, Peter said this, it says in verse 6, because he did not know what to say. <laughs> he decided to say something, even though he did not know what to say. Terror had filled these disciples. So Peter blurted out the first thing that came to his mind. But God responded to what Peter said by coming in the cloud. Every one of these characters, Jesus, Moses, Elijah, Peter, James, John, they were all Israelite men whose ancestors had been in the presence of God's glory in the past. God had led Israel in the form of a cloud through the wilderness. They had watched the cloud of God's glory descend upon the temple after Solomon built it. And when they rebelled against God, they saw also the cloud of God's glory depart from the temple as well. So now when this cloud descends upon that mountain, they knew that God 
was making himself known in that moment. And then God spoke. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Just as God had at Jesus's baptism spoken of Jesus, here he confirms Jesus's identity as his only begotten son. The disciples, of course, in their statement or their suggestion to build the three tents were making Jesus equal with Moses and Elijah. So this mountaintop moment served to confirm what the disciples had previously confessed about Jesus. He's special. He's above. He's the Christ who is the Son of God. That's what God spoke from the cloud. But not only was Jesus' identity reinforced and Jesus' heart reinforced through this special conference, but his mission was also reinforced. We've already seen how Moses and Elijah spoke to Jesus about the departure he would accomplish in Jerusalem. To me, that's a wonderful word from Luke's gospel, the word accomplish. They felt that Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, followed by his ascension was a great accomplishment. Now at this point, the disciples were still struggling with the idea that Jesus would die. If you asked them if it would be an accomplishment for the Christ to die, they would say, no way, no how. But here we learn that Jesus's mission was to come and die. That's in part, I think, why God said in verse 7, listen to him. The disciples had just recently been arguing with Jesus about whether he would go and die. And now the father is saying, look, listen to what my son is saying. And when they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them not to say anything about what they'd just seen. Why? Well, Jesus knew that they still had the wrong idea about the Christ. And so did the masses, of course. So if they'd gone out and told everybody what they just saw up on that mountaintop, the scene would have been bananas. So Jesus tells them to be quiet until after his resurrection. Even the disciples' question about Elijah reinforced Jesus' mission. You know, these guys had all been taught that Elijah would come before the Christ and that Elijah would restore everything, get things ready for the Christ to come. Now, this was primarily based on the last prophecy of the Old Testament, which said in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, in response to their question, Jesus told them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. This likely means that Elijah will come before Jesus' second coming, somehow, some way, perhaps as one of the two witnesses that are found in Revelation chapter 11. Then Jesus also said in verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now this is a fascinating phrase from Jesus. It actually has a double meaning. First, the original Elijah was written about in 1st and 2nd Kings. And in Elijah's story, there was a wicked king named Ahab and his wicked wife named Jezebel who persecuted Elijah. They did what they wanted to Elijah. 
But second, Jesus is also speaking about John the Baptist. He had come in the spirit and power of Elijah, according to Luke chapter 1. And for John, a wicked king, Herod, and his wicked wife, Herodias, had persecuted him in a similar way to Elijah's persecution. But they persecuted him all the way to the point of his death when they beheaded him. And Matthew tells us that when Jesus said these words about Elijah's suffering, the disciples understood that Jesus was speaking to them about John the Baptist. And Jesus also asked the question in verse 12, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? In other words, the Old Testament scriptures more often spoke of the future glory of the Christ. That is true. But also spoke of his suffering as well. And Jesus drew their attention to that reality. He reminded them, he reinforced for them his mission. Now you might be thinking to yourself at this point that the reinforcement of Jesus' identity and mission was necessary for the disciples then, but not for believers today. And I think that you'd be wrong if you thought that to yourself. First, believers today desperately need to recall Jesus's identity as the only begotten son. We tend to listen to too many voices that would compete with Christ. We bring him down to too low of a level. Instead, as the father said, we must listen to Jesus and his word. We tend to forget that the humble service of Christ was demonstrated when he incarnated for us. Instead, we need to imitate Jesus and serve the world around us. We tend to treat Jesus like another in a long line of teachers and prophets dispensing great teachings and good morals to which we'll try to adhere. Instead, we need to recognize that he is the last Adam who came to transfer us from death to life if we believe in him. Second, believers today desperately need to recall Jesus's mission on the cross. We tend to think answers are found elsewhere, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is humanity's great need. The cross must always be exalted. It must always be preached. It is that which divides the hearts of humanity, but it also is that which rescues fallen and depraved and broken people. Now I'd like to conclude today's teaching with one last observation. You know, we've seen how the transfiguration on the mountaintop provided an encouraging preview of the glory of Jesus to come. We've also seen how this mountaintop provided an an important conference, an essential meeting before Jesus went out and accomplished his mission. But it also provides us, thirdly, with a different mountain. And this mountain is all important to your life today. So let me explain. Moses and Elijah and Jesus all had something in common after this day. Something important happened on mountaintops for all of these men. Important experiences on mountaintops with God's glory. 
Let's take Moses first. After he led the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt, they were in the wilderness near Mount Sinai. And God called Moses up to Mount Sinai, to the mountaintop, for 40 days and nights. And there he received the law of God in the form of the Ten Commandments, in the form of the civil law for the people of Israel, and in the form of the ceremonial worship code for the nation. And when Moses came out of God's presence, out of God's cloud, he glowed, though he even didn't know it, he glowed with the after effects of God's glory. Now Elijah, let's consider him. As God's man, man and prophet, he had announced a great drought would come upon the nation of Israel because of their disobedience. For years, no rain came upon the land and Elijah was in hiding. But finally, one day, Elijah emerged and he challenged the prophets of Baal, whom the people of Israel were worshiping at that time, to a contest on Mount Carmel. And after giving the priests of Baal a chance to call down fire from their God, Elijah on that mountaintop offered a humble sacrifice and prayer to Israel's God. And God's glory was manifested in the fire that consumed the sacrifice and even the altar that it sat upon. So Moses glowed with the afterglow of God's glory. Elijah called down the presence of God's power and glory. But what did Jesus do? Moses reflected. Elijah called down. What did Jesus do? Well, he went to his mountain and he prayed. There he was transfigured. This doesn't mean that God's power and God's glory came upon Jesus. It means that it shone from Jesus. He was changed in that moment into what he truly was, the Son of God. They could see it now, get a glimpse of his glory that was intrinsic to who he was. In another place, Jesus prayed like this. He said, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And when Jesus shone, as Mark says, with radiance like no launderer on earth could produce, it was a manifestation of Jesus' own glory that he had. He did not need to reflect God's glory like Moses. He did not need to call down God's glory like Elijah. Instead, he produced God's glory because he is God. But how does this information help you and me today. Simple. The Bible teaches us that faith in Christ leads us to become new creations or new creatures in him. We're made new. We're transferred into Christ. Our new nature is such that it's like we died with Christ, we're buried with Christ, and have been raised with Christ. Our old self Romans 6, 5 says, was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We must believe this or consider this, Romans 6, 11, to be so that just like Jesus, we also are dead 
to sin and alive to God. Dead to sin, alive to God. What the New Testament teaching declares is that when you believe in Jesus, that's who you are. You are positionally dead to sin and alive to God because you've been conjoined to Jesus. And once you know who you are in Christ, you'll stop thinking that you need to grow in the way that Moses did or Elijah did. You'll stop thinking that you need experience after experience to change you temporarily like Moses was changed temporarily. And you'll stop thinking that your only hope is to call down the power of God at various moments like Elijah did on Mount Carmel. Instead, you will know that you have been changed in Christ. You are new in him. You are a new creature in him. It's past tense. Christ's position is now yours. And from that identity in prayer and with the Spirit's aid, of course, you will, Romans 6.13, present yourself to God as one who has been brought from death to life and your members you will present as instruments for righteousness. What are our members that we present as instruments for righteousness? Your body parts, for one, your mind, your emotions, your thoughts, your dreams, your intentions, all of those are conveyed in the idea of the word your members you give to God as instruments for righteousness. And as you operate, live, exist in step with the new identity that God has given to you, you will become experientially changed, transformed. Positionally, in Christ, you have been changed. Now, as you walk in him, you become outwardly changed. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, as we behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. It's the same word to describe Jesus' transfiguration into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So let's also be a people who listen to him. When the Father told them to listen to Jesus, he didn't mean listening in the purely auditory sense. He meant more than capturing what Jesus said. Did you get that? Did you write that down? No, he meant obedience. These men would one day receive a new nature in Christ. They would become born again, regenerated by the Spirit. And when that great transfer occurred, they also would be able to obey Jesus. Not without fail, but ever increasingly, they could surrender their bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. Let us as believers, do the same. God bless you, church. Come on out to the online gathering of the Tuesday night Bible study this week. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.